Hey, it's Brian, back with another Burr Month's bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. We're just a couple of weeks away from Halloween, and I don't know what things are looking like where you are, but I'm starting to see Christmas items out on the store shelves out here in California. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, or at least a lot like the countdown to Christmas. Well, if you're starting your Christmas celebrations early, and I'm assuming you are if you're listening to this episode, I've got you covered with another classic piece of Christmas fiction. This one's from 1895, and it's called My Christmas Dinner, written anonymously. Before we get to that, let me share with you my couple of standard announcements. First of all, I would love it if you could share a Christmas memory in an episode later on this season. All you have to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Just keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Secondly, just earlier today, I sent out a Christmas card containing an official Christmas Past sticker to a listener in Southern California, and I hope that the next Christmas Past sticker I send will be to you. As a matter of fact, I just had to order a fresh supply because I'm running low. There is only one way to get a Christmas Past sticker, and that is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It takes less than a minute, and it really does make a big difference, more than you might realize. So just take a minute to share your thoughts with the world and then get in touch with me with your mailing address. Again, that's christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, as the season grows nearer, no doubt you'll be looking for some fresh new Christmas podcasts to liven up your playlist. Well, I don't know if you're like me, but I've found that trying to find new Christmas podcasts can be a pretty frustrating experience. Searching for them only shows you a small fraction of what's really out there and what's really worth listening to. So I've created the definitive directory of Christmas podcasts. It's a listing of over 160 podcasts arranged in 12 different categories. There is something for everyone and there are sure to be several new podcasts you've never heard before just waiting to be discovered. So head over to christmaspast.media, scroll down to the latest post section, and you'll find the definitive directory of Christmas podcasts pinned to the top there all season long. Or better yet, just Google the definitive directory of Christmas podcasts. Now I'll come back at the end to wrap up and say goodbye, but for now, please enjoy this 1895 anonymous story, My Christmas Dinner. It was on the 20th of December last that I received an invitation from my friend Mr. Figgins to dine with him in Mark Lane on Christmas Day. I had several reasons for declining this proposition. The first was that Mr. P makes it a rule at these festivals to empty the entire contents of his counting house into his little dining parlor, and you consequently sit down to dinner with six white waistcoated clerks let loose upon a turkey. The second was that I am not sufficiently well-read in cotton and sugar to enter with any spirit into the subject of conversation. And the third was, and is, that I never drink Cape wine. But by far, the most prevailing reason remains to be told. I had been anticipating for some days and was hourly in hope of receiving an invitation to spend my Christmas Day in a most irresistible quarter. I was expecting indeed the felicity of eating plum pudding with an angel, and on the strength of my imaginary engagement I returned a polite note to Mr. P, reducing him to the necessity of advertising for another candidate for cape and turkey. The 21st came, another invitation to dine with a regiment of roast beef eaters at Clapham, 
I decline this also for the above reason and for one other, viz. that on dining there ten Christmas days ago it was discovered on sitting down that one little accompaniment of the roast beef had been entirely overlooked. Would it be believed, but I will not stay to mystify, I merely mention the fact they had forgotten the horseradish. The next day arrived, and with it a neat epistle, sealed with violet-colored wax from Upper Brook Street. Dine with the ladies at home on Christmas Day, it said. Very tempting, it is true, but not exactly the letter I was longing for. I began, however, to debate within myself upon policy of securing this bird in the hand instead of waiting for the two that were still hopping about in the bush, when the consultation was suddenly brought to a close by a prophetic view of the portfolio of drawings fresh from boarding school, moths and roses on embossed paper, to say nothing of the album, in which I stood engaged to write an elegy on a java sparrow that had been my favorite in the family for three days. I rung for guilt-edged, pleaded a word of polite regret, and again, declined. The twenty-third dawned. Time was getting on rather rapidly, but no card came. I began to despair of any more invitations and to repent of my refusals. Breakfast was hardly over, however, when the servant brought up, not a letter, but an aunt and a brace of cousins from Bayswater. They would listen to no excuse. Consanguinity required me, and Christmas was not my own. Now, my cousins kept no albums. They are really as pretty as cousins can be, and when violent hands with white kid's gloves are laid on one, it is sometimes difficult to effect an escape with becoming elegance. I could not, however, give up my darling hope of a pleasanter prospect. They fought with me in fifty engagements that I pretended to have made. I showed them the court guide with ten names obliterated, being those of persons who had not asked me to mince meat and mistletoe, and I ultimately gained my cause by quartering the remains of an infectious fever on the sensitive fears of my aunt, and by dividing a rheumatism and sprained ankle between my sympathetic cousins. As soon as they were gone, I walked out, sauntering involuntarily in the direction of the only house in which I felt I could spend a happy Christmas. As I approached, a porter brought a large hamper to the door. A present from the country, thought I. Yes, they do dine at home. They must ask me. They know that I am in town. Immediately afterwards, a servant issued with a letter. He looked the nearest way to my lodgings, and I hurried back by another street to receive the so-much-wished-for invitation. I was in a state of delirious delight. I arrived, but there was no letter. I sat down to wait, in a spirit of calmer enjoyment than I had experienced for some days, and in less than half an hour a note was brought to me. At length the desired despatch had come. It seemed written on the leaf of a lily with a pen dipped in dew. I opened it, and had nearly fainted with disappointment. It was from a stockbroker, who begins an anecdote of Mr. Rothschild before dinner and finishes it with the fourth bottle and who makes his eight children stay up to supper in Snapdragon. In macadamizing a stray stone in one of his periodical puddings, I once lost a tooth, and with it an heiress of some reputation. I wrote a most irritable apology, and dispatched my warmest regards in a whirlwind. December the 24th. I began to count the hours, and uttered many poetical things about the wings of time. Alack, no letter came. 
Yes, I received a note from a distinguished dramatist requesting the honor, etc., but I was too cunning for this, and practiced wisdom for once. I happened to reflect that this pantomime was to make its appearance on the night after, and that his object was to perpetrate the whole program upon me. Regret that I could not have the pleasure of meeting Mr. Paolo and the rest of the literati to be then and there assembled was, of course, immediately expressed. My mind became restless and agitated. I felt amidst all these invitations cruelly neglected. They served indeed but to increase my uneasiness as they opened prospects of happiness in which I could take no share. They discovered a most tempting dessert composed of forbidden fruit. I took down Child Harold and read myself into sublime contempt of mankind. I began to perceive that merriment is only malice in disguise, and the chief cardinal virtue is misanthropy. I sat nursing my wrath till it scorched me, when the arrival of another epistle suddenly charmed me from this state of delicious melancholy and delightful endurance of wrong. I sickened as I surveyed and trembled as I opened it. It was dated, but no matter, it was not the letter. In such a frenzy as mine, raging to behold the object of my admiration condescend not to eat a custard, but to render it invisible, to be invited perhaps to a tart fabricated by her own ethereal fingers with such possibilities before me, how could I think of joining a friendly party where I should inevitably sit next to a deaf lady who had been, when a little girl, patted on the head by Wilkie's or my Lord North, she could not recollect which, had taken tea with the author Junius but had forgotten his name, and who once asked me whether Mr. Munden Monument was in Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's. I seized a pen and presented my compliments. I hesitated, for the peril of precariousness of my situation flashed on my mind. But hope had still left me a straw to catch at, and I at length succeeded in resisting this late and terrible temptation. After the first burst of excitement, I sunk into still deeper despondency. My spirit became a prey to anxiety and remorse. I could not eat. Dinner was removed with unlifted covers. I went out. The world seemed to have acquired a new face. Nothing was to be seen but raisins and rounds of beef. I wandered around like Lear. I had given up all. I felt myself grated against the world like a nutmeg. It grew dark. I sustained a still gloomier shock. Every chance seemed to have expired, and everybody seemed to have a delighted engagement for the next day. I alone was disengaged. I felt like the last man. Tomorrow appeared to have already commenced its career, mankind had anticipated the future, and coming mince pies cast their shadows before. In this state of desolation and dismay, I called, I could not help it, at the house to which I had so fondly anticipated an invitation and a welcome. My protest must here, however, be recorded that though I called in the hope of being asked, it was my fixed determination not to avail myself of so protracted a piece of politeness. No, my triumph would have been to have annihilated them with an engagement made in September, payable three months after date. With these feelings, I gave an agitated knock. They were stoning the plums and did not immediately attend. I rung. How unlike a dinner bell it sounded. A girl at length made her appearance and, with a mouthful of citron, informed me that the family had gone to spend their Christmas Eve in Portland Place. 
I rushed down the steps. I hardly knew whither. My first impulse was to go to some wharf and inquire what vessels were starting for America. But it was a cold night. I went home and threw myself on my miserable couch. In other words, I went to bed. I dozed and dreamed away the hours till daybreak. Sometimes I fancied myself seated in a roaring circle, roasting chestnuts at a blazing log. At others I had fallen into the serpentine while skating, and that the Humane Society were piling upon me a Pelion, or rather a Vesuvius, of blankets. I awoke a little refreshed. Alas, it was the 25th of the month. It was Christmas Day. Let the reader, if he possesses the imagination of Milton, conceive my sensations. I swallowed an atom of dry toast. Nothing could calm the fever of my soul. I stirred the fire and read Zimmerman alternately. Even reason, the last remedy one has recourse to in such cases, came at length to my relief. I argued myself into a philosophic fit. But unluckily, just as the Lethean tide within me was at its height, my landlady broke in upon my lethargy and chased away by a single word all the little sprites and pleasures that were acting as my physicians and prescribing balm to my wounds. She paid me the usual compliment and then, Do you dine at home today, sir? abruptly inquired she. Here was a question. No Spanish inquisitor ever inflicted such complete dismay in so short a sentence. Had she given me a sphinx to expound, a Gordian tangle to untwist, had she set me a lesson in algebra, or asked me the way to Brobdignag, had she desired me to show her the North Pole or the meaning of a melodrama, any or all of these I might have accomplished, but to request me to define my dinner to inquire into its latitude, to compel me to fathom that sea of appetite which I now felt rushing through my frame, to ask me to dive into futurity and become the prophet of pies and preserves, my heart died within me at the impossibility of a reply. She had repeated the question before I could collect my senses around me. Then, for the first time, it occurred to me that, in the event of my having no engagement abroad, my landlady meant to invite me. There will be at least the two daughters, I whispered to myself, and after all, Lucy Matthews is a charming girl and touches the harp divinely. She has a very small, pretty hand, I recollect, only her fingers are so punctured by the needle and I rather think she bites her nails. No, I will not even now give up my hope. It was yesterday but a straw, today it is but a thistle down, but I will cling to it to the last moment. There are still four hours left. They will not dine till six. One desperate struggle and the peril is past. Let me not be seduced by this last golden apple and I may yet win the race. The struggle was made. I should not dine at home. This was the only phrase left me, for I could not say that I should dine out. Alas, that an event should be the same time so doubtful and so desirable. I only begged that if any letter arrived, it might be brought to me immediately. The last plank, the last splinter, had now given way beneath me. I was floating about with no hope but the chance of something almost impossible. They had left me alone, not with my glory, but with an appetite that resembled an avalanche seeking whom it might devour. I had passed one dinnerless day and half of another, yet the promised land was as far from sight as ever. 
I recounted the chances I had missed. The dinners I might have enjoyed passed in a dioramic view before my eyes. Mr. Figgins and his six clerks, the Clapham Beef Eaters, the charms of Upper Brook Street, my pretty cousins and the pantomime writer, the stockbroker whose stories one forgets, and the elderly lady who forgets her stories. They all marched by me, a procession of apparitions. Even my landlady's invitation, though unborn, was not forgotten in summing up my sacrifices. And for what? Four o'clock. Hope was perfectly ridiculous. I had been walking upon the hair bridge over a gulf and could not get into Elysium after all. I had been catching moonbeams and running after notes of music. Despair was my only convenient refuge. No chance remained unless something should drop from the clouds. In this last particular, I was not disappointed, for on looking up I perceived a heavy shower of snow, yet I was obliged to venture forth. For being supposed to dine out, I could not, of course, remain at home. Where to go? I knew not. I was like my first father. The world was all before me. I flung my coat round me and hurried forth with the feelings of a bandit, longing for a stiletto. At the foot of the stairs, I staggered against two or three smiling rascals, priding themselves upon their punctuality. They had just arrived to make the tour of Turkey. How I hated them. As I rushed by the parlor, a single glance disclosed to me a blazing fire, with Lucy and several lovely creatures in a semicircle. Fancy, too, gave me a glimpse of a sprig of mistletoe. I vanished from the house like a specter at daybreak. How long I wandered about is doubtful. At last, I happened to look through a kitchen window with an area in front and saw a villain with a fork in his hand throwing himself back in his chair choked with ecstasy. Another was feasting with a graver air. He seemed to be swallowing a bit of paradise and criticizing its flavor. This was too much for mortality. My appetite fastened upon me like an alligator. I darted from the spot, and only a few yards further discerned a house with rather an elegant exterior and with some ham in the window that looked perfectly sublime. There was no time for consideration. To hesitate was to perish. I entered. It was indeed a banquet hall deserted. The very waiters had gone home to their friends. There, however, I found a fire, and there, to sum up all my folly and felicity in a single word, I dined. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I sure hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. One of my favorite things about doing these Burr Months bonus episodes is discovering a lot of these classic Christmas stories for the first time. I wonder why this story was published anonymously, and I wonder who actually wrote it. Well, if you have any guesses, let me know. You can reach out anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com, and I sure wish you would because I love hearing from you. Whether it's because you have any ideas about this story, or you just want to say hi or share a Christmas memory. You can also reach out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let me invite you to join our private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't joined yet. We're celebrating the Burr months and, of course, the Christmas season, but the great thing about the group is that we celebrate all year long. And let me remind you once more to share a Christmas memory on the show this season if you can. Just record a voice memo into your phone and send it over to me. And take a moment to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I'll send you a handwritten Christmas card and a Christmas Past sticker to say thanks. 
Well, I'll be back next week with another classic Christmas story. Until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. And until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.